Welcome to Conversations for Ali, a podcast sharing the real-life, everyday stories of resilient Australian women from the bush. I'm Ebony Wan. We'll hear how these women have overcome some huge adversity, as well as what tools they use on a daily basis to regain a sense of peace, normality and happiness in their lives again. I've created this podcast in loving memory of my friend, Dr. Alexandra Jane Tapp. This is Conversations for Ali. Today, you're going to hear part two of Virginia Tapscott's story. If you missed part one, you can go back and find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This episode discusses some sensitive and adult themes, so please be aware if you have children or young people who might be listening. This part of Ginny's story was not easy to record, and it's not always easy listening, but we know that it's the right thing to do. To anybody who might ask, how do we think Alex would feel in us sharing such private and personal details of her life? We say that we're giving her the voice that she didn't feel she had. In her memory, we are opening up a conversation so that victims might feel that it's okay to speak up, so that they might feel supported and safe in doing so, so that we, as a wider community, might know what a crisis we are finding ourselves in, so that we think about how we want to be raising our children to treat others with respect, and so that our children don't have to suffer like Alex did. Since Virginia and I recorded this conversation, it has been found by the coroner that Alex's overdose was accidental. This, however, is not definitive, as there is little evidence to suggest either way. So we need to accept we likely will never really know for sure. In this episode, you will hear about Ali developing a problem with drugs and alcohol, self-harming, factors surrounding sexual abuse and rape, suicidal thoughts, and the end of Ali's life. You'll also notice how much she achieved despite what she endured. You might wonder how can somebody be so unlucky to be sexually abused and assaulted by two different men in her family. Predators know people who are broken, who have already been abused and in this case, squash any strand of self-esteem left and know that the victim is unlikely to say anything. Did you know that most victims of rape and sexual assault know their attacker? Alex is my oldest friend and has been one of the most significant people in my life. She even introduced me to my husband. We always said we'd be best friends forever and as much as I desperately miss her now, the least I can do is make sure people keep saying her name. I'd like to thank my husband Pete and Ginny's husband Reese, who always support us, pick up the slack around the house to help keep the kids from going completely nuts so we can complete projects like this because they also know that it's for the greater good. This is part two of Virginia's story. With learning about Ali having an overdose around the time of your wedding, um, did you know that she was using drugs at that point or or self-harming or were there any other signs around her behaviour that sort of indicated to you that things weren't good or was that a was that a big shock oh it was always a shock because she was not living with us she always made sure that she was she was always it's almost like she was keeping us at arm's length so we couldn't 
see the reality of what was happening. Like she never was in Narrabri for very long. First chance she got, she went overseas. Like I don't think, I'm not saying that she's like in a, you know, in a bad way, but she was definitely like to keep her family at arm's length because I think that these issues were starting to, you know, come up and she was using, abusing drugs and abusing alcohol and she didn't want people to be able to see the reality of that because the nature of mental health is that you can tell mental health issues is that you can tell yourself a, a narrative of, that normalizes it but if she had people close to her it would be a lot harder to keep telling herself this narrative that it was okay and I could keep doing this mm. and after my wedding you know she would you know she'd have like a so that initial overdose that we knew of and she would sort of come back and be like, oh, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Like, um, and that would be it. Like, and she would be like, and don't, you know, don't look at me and don't talk to me about it. Yeah. And that is that I've always got relief from sharing. Like I'm talking to you now, Ebony, like that is just my nature. I don't know what it is. Like I get relief from not having to keep these things to myself because If I keep them in in here in the dark, they can terrorise me more. Whereas if I bring it out and shine a flashlight on it, I'm like, see, that's what it is. Like yeah. everyone can see that's all, that's what it is and let's deal with that. Yeah. Whereas Alex was always just like, no, 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 I'm, you know, I've got this. And she would tell us what she thought we needed to hear and then mum and I would be optimistic. And then I think behind closed doors, things just deteriorated without mm. familiar support mm. you know. and so because she was in another state um I think you probably relied on her fiance to share things um if things weren't going well or if she needed help and I think um there might have been one or two good friends in Ballarat yeah. who were helpful in sharing with you how she was going and if and if she needed some help they only they only ever did that. And this is no through no fault of their own. Like people only ever reach out to you when it's like really bad, you know. Mm. So her good friends would call mum or Damien would call mum, but only like as a last resort. Mm. And then mum would come down there and everyone would just pretend like play happy. Mm. Yeah. Like there'd be, be these big blowouts. She called mum one day and she said, oh, I've had a fall in the shower. I've cut my arm. And I've just had to go to the hospital and get it fixed up. And mum, you know, mum just, mum takes you at your word. Like mum, and mum passed that information on to me. And I thought, ooh, sounds like, you know, she's cut herself. And that the falling over in the shower is a bit of a cover story. Um, she's self-harming. And then, like, you know, in the end, we she did tell us that she had cut herself. And that was, uh, you know, another sort of, part where it would come to the surface we'd see what was happening and then she'd quickly sort of bring it back down tell us that everything was okay she always told us that she couldn't go to rehab because she couldn't be deregistered as a vet Mm. um she always just and and you can't make somebody again the advice is you you just have to be there as a support non-judgmental support until they get to a point where they reach out and want help. Mm. And I guess Alex just never, she never got to that point where she Mm. could handle the discomfort of allowing, you know, people to see what her problems were Mm. so that she could 
get move on from that. And so do you think there was um, substance addiction as far as alcohol and drugs go? Yeah, yeah. I, well, uh, in hindsight, um, and like the trauma that, that she was living with is if you are in enough emotional distress, it becomes an actual physical pain, what I've since learned. And what that girl had been through, like she was doing an absolute A-grade champion job of where she got to, you know, that, you know, in her life, mm. like being able to excel all, all of what she was able to achieve. And in the end, she was doing this by uh, multi-substance abuse, which was basically whatever you can get your hands on to relieve the pain mm. that you live with. Mm. And that was opioids, mm. alcohol, um, those were the, the main two. Self-harming is a, is a form of relief um, that she used. Um, and, yeah, and I just really felt like as far as me trying to be a support person that she could reach out to, she just never saw me as that. Um, I was had all these little kids running around and mm. maybe she felt like she didn't want to put this on me and mm. she didn't want to be – she felt she saw it as a failure and she yeah. did never ever want people to see that. But we – you know, I especially don't see that as a failure because I've dealt with – I've struggled with some things myself and mm. so I wish that could have seen me mm. as someone but – now and again you sort of reach your hand into the abyss and I just never found her hand again yes um and what what was it do you think at the at around the time of your wedding when she had overdosed and disclosed that that there had been a rape um later in her teenage years how was it that that didn't become known or nobody did anything about that what do you think she had said to the people that she shared that information to? Oh, she was just not in a million years going to press charges. Yeah. But, you know, I think with the victims of these kinds of trauma, rape trauma, you're living with enough, you know, you've got enough going, you're up to your neck in it. And to press charges is, you know, there is no way of avoiding that it is going to bring up some things and there are going to be some struggles with having this information in the public domain, which it kind of needs to be in order to press charges. Mm. I mean, there are anonymous reporting systems that you can go through, but they won't guarantee. They will only go on a database that can be searched. And if um, other people report the same person, um, they might collate that information, mm. but you will you're not granted your anonymity whereas mm. if you press charges it's very hard for that to not be in the public domain especially like their family will know um and I think she just was not ever in a place where she was going to take that on and a number of psychiatrists said that that would be an important part of the healing to get to the place where she could confront him mm. and tell him that what he did was wrong mm. and that um, yeah, but she she never got to that place, and I don't. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of victims of, of rape never do because it is such a a gross violation, and I mm. and it's such a tough thing to live with. Um, it's such an intimate, disgusting thing to have done to you that I just I could you know I have a total admiration for now in hindsight all of these cases that I have seen in the media of people trying to hold the, these perpetrators to account. 
and the what those women have to go through mm. it is insane and mm. they must just be made of something that I don't know because mm. it's yeah such an ordeal and I guess also um not only is it it's um sort of it is intimate and disgusting and all of those things but often it's violent as well and we know in this case it was so there's a lot of really really traumatic factors around that event well it was the use of necessary force Mm. and I think a lot of people get that mixed up with violence like they put violence in this category of like must have a knife you know must cause visible injury like that is violence but a lot of rapists only use necessary force because mm. they just want to get the job done. And there's yeah. a lot more work being um, put into this psychological profiling so that we can really work out what leads to these maladaptive behaviours. Mm. But there mm. is so much we have to change about the way that the rape um, misconception is in the public discourse at the moment in order to help victims see that it's not their fault. Mm. and that they aren't to blame and even if it doesn't fit the stereotype you were grabbed in a dark alleyway and held at knife point it is still rape if you didn't consent to that um so Ali did she get psychological help um yeah yeah and were you aware of that at the time yes yeah well when she would she would tell I don't actually know how much of it translated to actual hours in the room with a psychiatrist but she would definitely tell us that she mm. was yeah and I think she definitely did sometimes Alex but- because she was um you know very smart and she was a, a doctor of you know an equine vet um, yeah I think she sometimes felt that there was not a lot they could offer her that she didn't already know yeah a big part of mental health recovery is really it is you think you know um and you just kind of have to put your trust in somebody else that you whatever you're doing is not working so maybe they've got a better idea sort of thing yeah um so so in the the sort of four ish years since your wedding um were you aware of sort of the wheels really falling off I know um her relationship ended with her fiance in that time um yeah how much did you know about and and were you ever concerned about her life that her life might be threatened oh in the time before my wedding I like we always knew that there was a bit of like there was struggles um but she just didn't talk to me Mm. about that and I think I'm such a sharer that I would you know get on the phone to her and be like oh look I've been spending way too much I know I use I know I do it to cope I'm I've really got to I don't know how to get across that like I've really got to do something about that and she would just not give anything back yeah and I know that that's like a classic thing that she does to cope and I knew that at the time and I thought we could maybe get some like you know sharing happening like some common ground like I am I'm not perfect I you know I have these things going on too like let's talk about that Mm. but it never it never was something she wanted to do like she only ever wanted to talk to me about like how she's going to the gym or yoga and that's beautiful like I know and I think that she did want people to see that she did have a lot of great stuff going on and I she did but you know you can't get through life like just focusing on that like we all have to 
talk about what's not great that's going on. Mm. Um, and she, I could never do that with her. And then when um, in the lead up to the drug, her fatal drug overdose, she did say that she was suicidal. And I tried to, mum and I both tried to get her to go to rehab to be in a facility um and she just she wouldn't because she um didn't want to be deregistered mm. didn't want to know that about her mm. that she was having such trouble she uh, with you know an opioid addiction and um for a long time she was rattling around in pill bottles and things that uh, I don't really like I don't know I didn't mm. know anything about opioid addiction I was just like she takes Panadol a lot. Like she did also have um, endometriosis, we think. And I just thought that it was that. Like, and then she would tell you, and she, and then I, you know, I passed on to mum that she was telling me she, she thought about, you know, ending her life. She, she never told me I am going to do it. She would say, she would recount times when she had entertained the idea of doing it. Mm. And I, pass that on to mum and mum would keep her with her like and as much as she could like someone's in front of you they can't do it mm. and we were trying to sort of get the motion happening to get her. we considered like having her manhandled in, into facilities but you know I think as someone who's an adult like I, I don't think that was the answer with Alex like mm. I don't think having her handled into a facility would have I think she would have resented us and I think she would have played the game in there until she could get out mm. I don't know so um, that was very confronting though because I did not know that she entertained the idea of suicide until the weeks before her death mm-hmm. so tell us about sort of the last 12 months of Ali's life um, I know she went over to the UK in maybe June or July last year yeah and and yeah. sort of, yeah, how she was. Well, on the phone, she always seemed fine. Um, I do know from talking to her, you know, in the weeks before she died that she was injecting um, opioids out of the vet medical supplies um, and that I think she may have started doing that in the UK. I'm not sure. I don't know if she was doing that before. Um, and that's just to sleep, that to make the pain go away. Um, then when COVID happened, um, she was going to stick it out over there. Um, she, mum went over there for Christmas just before she came on a beach holiday with us. Uh, she always had like her things that were going on, like mm. that you could, but it was never, you know, she always largely seemed like she was okay. Mm. And then, yeah, she came home for COVID. She was in the quarantine um and she was always just she did tell me like it was hard in there but she in a in a sort of like oh I'm cooped up I can't wait to get out sort of a way like not in I am in a very very bad place yeah um which is what she was telling her ex-fiance at that stage um which we didn't know about um but she I think that was the nature of the personality disorder is that she would be different things to different people yeah and that if she knew that he was knew everything and he she saw him as a safe person to just let it out to and be like, well, I am in a really bad place. I don't know what to do. 
I mm. think that, yeah. Um, whereas when she was on the phone to me and the kids, when she was in, the kids and I, when she was in quarantine, she would just be like happy talking to us and glad, glad for, you know, a distraction from the boredom. But that's yeah. all I saw us as. Like, I just thought that she was trying to just break the boredom. Mm. Um, so she was in quarantine for two weeks in <laughs> Melbourne and yeah, obviously it's not easy for anybody to be in a motel room for two weeks around the clock and, you know, no fresh air, no window, all of that. But especially yeah. um, going through, you know, me- uh, having mental problems and not being able to see anybody or have a doctor or medication and all that sort of thing. And then especially, I guess, if she was um, having problems with drug addiction, that that wouldn't have been an easy time. Um, and we don't know, like, whether she was fully withdrawing in quarantine or whether she still had some medication or, you know, drugs or mm. Yeah, mm. we don't know. Don't know. So um, I know she came and stayed with you because, you know, yeah. in, in the last 12 months you had also moved um, to a farm near Albury for your, your husband got a job there, Reese and... And you had a, a new baby, Eva, um, in in that sort of summer period last year. Um, so lots of changes for you, but I guess she was easily it was easy for her to come and stay with you since you weren't too far from Melbourne, um, and you hadn't and seen her for a long time. Pardon? Yeah, and not close to Narrabri. Yeah. Like I think she really saw us as somewhere that she could go because mm. it wasn't at Narrabri. Mm. And I loved that. Like I thought that it would be amazing and that, you know, we I might finally get to sort of be there for her in some capacity and that if we and that if we were helping her out, you know, and then she was helping me out with the kids, like, and it was a lovely time. Um, I know now that she was in, she was taking a lot of, um, some post-operative really strong opioids that we had in our medicine cabinet that I was unaware that she was taking and she obviously didn't ask or didn't tell us that she was taking them and it wasn't until the days before she left that I realized that they were all gone and that she must have taken them all so she must have been dependent because she didn't have you know anything really that she needed to be taking those for so that was really this when I realized that that she was dependent on Mm. these opioids and um but it was a nice time to have her and have with her you know considering what happened but it's just it i really see our relationship breakdown as a um a result of you know the mental health issues that have arisen mm. from being her you know being her, her being in the pathways of two abusive men yeah and that's just unlucky mm. so did you confront her about those drugs that had gone missing I did I did because I was I was was sort of in shock and I thought this is bad Mm. if she's dependent and I need to hold up every now and again I would sort of try and hold up the reality of what was happening for her Mm. which is probably not what you're supposed to do you're supposed to always just be like go along with it make them feel supported make sure they don't feel judged until they feel like they can reach out to you when they feel ready for help. Mm. But that was never happening. So every now and again, and this was one occasion, I would be like, I said, Alex, you, you know, 
did you take all of those drugs? You know, all of our drugs, all of our whatever they were. I can't remember what I call it, Valium or something. Mm. And she just denied it out of hand. And then I had to really back down from that. And it was very upsetting and she wanted to leave immediately and mum was upset and it was, I felt like maybe I'd done the wrong thing and what if she hadn't, like what if I'd just lost them? And anyway, yeah. uh, we we did eventually sort of realise a lot more was missing than just the Valium and that there could only be one explanation for that. And I did tell mum about that and I think she read mum's text messages and could see it was obvious that she had taken them all. And okay. then she admitted to to having taken them all. Mm. and I think she'd never fully recovered from that like that was she didn't she yeah she hated that we knew Mm. and that that had happened and that and she felt like we would hate her Mm. and I just kept over and over I was like I we love you we Mm. love you so much we want for you to be able to tolerate reality what do we need to do what can you do to make reality more tolerable for you and we just could never find that. Yeah. That's, she could it's never just heartbreaking. Um, and, and it just goes to show, like, you can have somebody in your house who is clearly so unwell and they're taking these heavy-duty drugs, which I know you had because Reese had a really serious operation on his neck um, prior to yeah. that. Um, and... And you were just not aware of how bad things were and, and not even that she was using drugs like that. Like it's it it's just, it's hard to believe, but it happens. And, yeah. It... She, she almost once while she was here in my house and she said that she had a bug, like mm. a vomiting bug. I, I did not believe that. I thought she might have been bulimic or okay. something. I did not even imagine that she had overdosed on drugs I thought that she might have been you know throwing up or something yeah for some reason so you're right like the people who are in a really bad place aren't stumbling around the streets obviously sad Mm. asking for help they are hiding it Mm. very in sometimes very expertly hiding it Mm. and um they're the ones you've really got to look out for, mm. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been a big lesson for for all yeah. of us. Um, and so, so she eventually admitted that that she had taken those drugs. And and what happened after that? How was the situation handled? Well, that was when she disclosed her rape to me and she said that she just took anything to take the pain away and as I said we sort of I sort of discussed whether we could you know whether she would consider like rehabilitation to try and get herself to a place where she could tolerate reality without a drug dependence to the end she maintained that she wasn't addicted to drugs um that she just took anything to take the pain away and I, I just think that that was part of her telling herself a narrative that it wasn't so bad that we can keep going like this. Mm. Um, and and I think uh, her, like, wanting to leave and stop the pain completely did come in waves. Mm. And this is, my un- this is how I'm developing my understanding of how it has ended is that she's just gotten a big, you know, a big wave, possibly like they talk about, you've got very intrusive voices that tell you and thought patterns that tell you that you are, 
you know, not long for this world and that you need to just make the pain stop Mm. is how I understand in in those final weeks. But she did, uh, again, go back to, um, look, it's okay. I'm getting it. I'm going to see a psychiatrist. I've, I've, you know, the doctors, he's increased my antidepressant um, dosage and, uh, look, we're, I'm just I'm sorting this out. I'm going to this job trial in Newcastle. This job's going to be great. And so, Mum and I, you just got to get off their back. You can't mm. you can't keep writing them mm. like about something that they're telling you that they're dealing with. Mm. You can't keep being like, so have you taken anything today? And we know that while she was telling us this, something else she was continuing to seek out, you know, drugs that she could use to take away the pain. Mm. Um and. I suppose when she disclosed that she had been raped later in life as as well as the the child um, sexual abuse that she'd experienced earlier, but you already knew about that, but this rape was a new piece of information for you. So as her sister, trying to deal with and process the fact that your sister clearly has a really big drug problem, which is not a part of your world, so you you know, trying to learn what is this, how do we deal with this? And now there's some really big information that um, was shocking. How did you navigate that? Well, and she's also, she's told, and this also by and large, all of it has to be kept a major secret. Like okay. you can't, you know, as in when she told me about the rape and she was like, and you can't, and obviously I'm not to tell anybody. And I was just like, it's so, it's so shocking and I can't, Uh, the only way I can describe being told this information about someone that you know and love is that everything that you know to be true is suddenly not. Mm. And you are just left reeling with how did this happen? Like how could this happen? Your brain does search for Mm. any other possible explanation Mm. apart from the truth. And I think that's why people have a lot of trouble believing rape victims because it's horrific. Like yeah. who would do this? Yeah. And you're just like, there must be some other explanation for this, mm. but there isn't. And you mm. have to believe them just mm. because something is unbelievable and disgusting does not, you know, make it not real. And mm. that person, when they just, and I knew in my mind, I was like, I know she needs to feel safe in her disclosure because I don't want her to feel, you know, like exposed or anything that might really upset her at this stage because I know that things are quite volatile. Mm. And so I was just, I was belief. I was, um, initially she wouldn't tell me who it was. And I was, I was like, you got to, like, you can't, I just really, my brain was just, I was shocked and I was terrified. And then she wouldn't tell me who it was. And I knew it was a close male relative. And I was just like, you got to tell me, can't live like this. And anyway, so she did tell me in the end. And then I was just nothing but, I'm, that is that is so terrible so not your fault I can't I can't I'm sorry that this happened to you like this is too horrific and I was just there for her and I was like if you ever you know I'm here if you want I will not let on that I know this like everything I tried to do but it was just mm. you know the most awful position mm. um, and if, if, if I was experiencing this level of shock and trauma like it's only a fraction of what she must have lived with every day last 10 years like yeah and and also let's not forget the fact that you have three young children 
while all of this is sort of happening in the last few months and I can't even imagine how you were keeping them fed and dressed um, while your mind must have just been racing at 100 miles an hour. Um, there were times when I was just like, okay, Reese, like messages would be coming through and I was like, Reese, this is really heavy. You've mm. got to take them. Mm. So what happened, I guess, in in the time after she'd disclosed that to you to eventually um, the event that took her life? What what did those that she couple went, of weeks look like? Yeah, she well, she left with mum under pretty awful circumstances like yeah me saying that you've robbed my cupboard of every opioid in it and her saying that oh, she didn't um so that was the last time I hugged her and I'd sort of said you know I'd apologized and I'd been like she wanted to leave like that day and I'd Nate had planned to leave the following day and I just said just stay like please stay please don't leave now I'm sorry I'd I don't know what I, I can't, I just don't know where those pills went and I'm sorry that I, I said it was you and can you, you please stay? And she was just trying to like pack her bags and get out. And then the next day I sort of, I, I, you know, I hugged her and I said goodbye and they went home and then like we went back to sort of messaging. I don't know. We just had this joke about like COVID money and, you know, getting, you know, you super, out country and so she was getting her government money in it like we just used like that's just one thing we talked about like honey I don't know and, and um her like she'd be hiking on Capita and she'd message me about that and so it's this it's just such a weird space to be in where you're like you know they're trying to talk to you about normal things and you've got to go along with that mm. um and then they this um coping personality on she did like she put on clothes in the morning she just that was her until it wasn't and you yeah. would see that you know she wasn't coping but she would never let you see that side and she certainly would never let you help with that side mm. and mm. um and then we were going home she was all good to come to the christening it was christening I'd made sure that it was on at the time when she could be there and in, in Narrabri. Yeah. We're messaging about that. I was getting all that planned and I was just putting Elkie's shoes on on that Friday afternoon um after she had passed away and I was at my mother like Reese's parents' house and Reese just walked over to me and said, Oh Alex is dead. And I am going to a place where I can tell you about this even though it's extremely traumatic and I just can see his face like he wanted to so badly to not have to say it mm. you know like to just for me to like somehow ESP it to me and or like tell me with his face like I can see his face yeah. and he's shaking and then I was just like you just your brain just to, someone gives you that information and your brain just chucks it out it's yeah. like okay well that couldn't have happened mm. Then you're like, well, Reese has just told me this. There's no other explanation. And then your brain just chucks it out again. And I mm. sort of stood there in his arms for a while just being like, okay. And I just, I could not get over that this was all, everything was done. Like it's finished now. There's nothing you can do. Mm. Like we were always mm. in this state of 
Alex, like you know, with everybody in your life, like you're troubleshooting, you're problem solving, you're, you're working on something. And then for someone to come up and tell me that she was dead and that there was just nothing else to be done was this incredible feeling of empty, nothing void, like that I still feel mm. every now and again. And, and that is eventually replaced by just the in, intense sadness and mm. terror that mm. someone that you're never going to see someone again. Mm. And now, like, you still get that as well. Yeah. So how did your mum and yourself work through oh. the next little bit? Um, oh, I don't remember. I, I was just there, really. I don't remember. I mm. Well, I just put on her clothes and watched friends repeats and I think I was trying to be her I mm. don't know mm. like you bring someone back that way like I was just I don't know it's a weird thing that I wanted to put her you get to a point where you have to I had to get outside you get you know you in a hole you're getting in there like it's very deep hole and you're like I've actually got to how am I going to get out of this hole I've got to start you know troubleshooting how I'm going to get out because I don't I've got these kids around Mm. but everyone even people without kids like you have to you have to keep going and you just Mm. sort of after about two weeks I sort of started to wonder how I was going to got outside and I said um this is just you know in moments and then you're going through these terrible moments of you know getting the funeral sorted and what are you gonna like what are you gonna do with her and where are we gonna bury her and I don't know Mm. how it happened but it just happens and everyone who's lost someone will know that that stuff just gets sorted out Mm. um and I think I had to sort of not identify too close like I have like I knew I was sad but I couldn't be a sad person and I had to not give those thoughts like like too much control and I had to sort of just you know, you allow, you know, I allow myself to be sad, but I don't, I can't, I, I'm just like, they are my thoughts and I, my actions, not my thoughts. I just have to, you know, it's, yeah, it's important. It's, yeah. It's really impossible. Yeah. Um, so did you feel compelled after, after the news that Ali had passed away and then, of course, finding out what had happened to her, that, that she had had a drug overdose, which we still don't know um, whether it was intentional or not. But um, So there's lots of things um, that we all, and I say that being her friend, her friends and family have to come to accept and deal with that, that we may never know uh, a lot of her story and how things really did end. But we do know that... She did have a drug overdose. Um, so did you feel compelled to share the information that she had disclosed to you just, um, you know, 10 days or a fortnight before she died? I did. And I was just wondering how I was going to tell that to mum because I didn't know that mum knew at that stage. Mm. Alex basically made me believe like led me to believe that I was the only other person on the planet who knew this information Mm. and I was driving over in the car to Reese and I just felt that I was so connected like that information was so connected with what was happening now Mm. um 
I was going to have to tell my mum, but I didn't know if that would be in a few weeks or in a few months where I would come back to her and be like, look, mum, you know, this is what happened. But I got there. Mum had reported the rape to the policeman who turned up in her garden to tell her that her daughter was dead. Mm. That That is the burden of such a secret. It is so heavy and it's mm. so impossible to live with that information that when mum... As the second she knew that she'd lost Alex, she gave it up. She's yeah. like, I the, the the pain that I am in right now, I cannot, I do not have space to hold this in as well. Yes. I am not going to another Christmas with this man. I am not having this man at my daughter's funeral. Mm. Like, and that is uh, that is a natural response. There is relief in in a not having to carry a secret anymore. And mm. I think mum was going to get any sort of relief she could and mm. in that and for me it was a relief even though I'd only had it for like 10 days it was terrible knowing that and you've got that weight on your mm. shoulders and to know that mum knew was a relief um my uncle my mum's brother also knew and she had confided in him for years and two of mum's very close friends also knew because she had actually needed to tell someone that she could trust would not you know tell further because that would expose Alex and that was really dangerous territory you know when you've got this information and you feel like you need to tell someone but you don't want to you need to keep the the person's um, confidence yeah and those ladies that mum told her beautiful friends god love them had you know would would have taken that to the grave with them and they Mm. had been that vital thing for mum but it was still too much and Mm. You know, she she just all out with it. Um, we did a lot of other things in understanding and getting closure. Like we spoke to the vet who found Alex um, over the phone and, and, you know, asked what she'd taken and what, you know, she was on the bed and she was holding her phone and she still had a tourniquet on and she had a second syringe, I don't know what for, like that was unused. So whether yeah. she thought that that was the dosage that she needed and if she woke up, she was going to have some more or I don't know. Mm. But we, we did, you know, we did other things to get closure for what had happened. But that being open about the child sexual abuse and the rape and for me as well, I think I've been waiting 24 years to be open about everything that has happened to me and felt like I would be betraying Alex because I knew that she wasn't ready to be as open about it as I was yeah, and didn't possibly see that as an option for her, whereas I've always seen that as something that, but I felt like I would be exposing her in a way that she wasn't ready to be exposed while she was with us. Mm. So in passing, that option of me finally being open with my own abuse became available to me and something that I do for relief because I need to change the circumstances that have precipitated this situation and I get relief from it's like if someone murdered your sister you would be like well I need to convict them I need to find some right some seed of justice and right from this terrible terrible situation talking but we get relief from any contribution we can make to changing those social conditions that make people feel so alone and so um, afraid to report these things and afraid like and they feel like they can't discuss it 
Mm. It's not part of public discourse. Mm. It's not something about, and it needs to be an option for these people to save their lives. Yeah. And and so after Ali died and you moved through the the shock and and the crippling grief and all of those really heavy emotions and feelings after somebody dies and, and in a situation like this, um, sort of once you get through that that really shocking time, did you consciously make a decision about wanting to to um, bring light to the truth of what had happened to Alex and and also just um, I guess speaking up about about this sort of abuse that that is so prevalent in this country? Well that came about probably because the second we were public with our own experience of what had happened to Alex you know that the disclosures that came back to us were um, I, I still find it astounding. Mm. It's, it's something that I never expected, both from the same um, man who raped Alex, but also from other people who just had been raped. Mm. How were of, you know, mature aged women, had families, had husbands that they had never told. Mm. Had never told her husband that she mm. had been raped. Men that had been raped in school, um, that disclosed um, to us, strangers, people we know, and mum and I just were like, well, this is obviously a sickening of sickening prevalence and holy hell, why is no one talking about this? Mm. One in five Australian children will experience some form of sexual harm before they are 18. And beyond that, one in three Australian women will experience physical or sexual violence. Mm. So there is, it's really not surprising the amount of people who came back to us with mm. their own experience and saw us as a safe person to disclose to because you go through life, because no one talks about it, creates the illusion that no one, it's happened to no one else. And that is so, could not be further from the truth. The truth is that in all likelihood, you are surrounded by people who have been affected by this type of crime. Mm. And we are, not, we are not addressing it because nobody is talking about it and nobody feels safe to hold the perpetrators accountable. Mm. Um, and, and then so when you got back home to your farm, the Aubrey, after Ali died, um, I guess you, sh- you were able to share with, your employers what had happened and and sort of share some more intimate details that you obviously weren't aware of before you left to go on a a fortnight's break to Narrabri when all was sort of good in the world in inverted commas um and and that's the Corrigan family and and they were then compelled to do something extraordinary can you share um what happened there well they actually did that before they even knew the details because they called Reese when they knew that we had elected to a charity for people who wanted to support. They knew that we had elected um, for people to donate to our watch mm-hmm. and um, they actually called Reese quite soon after and said, look, we want to um, auction, uh, donate the proceeds of a bull at the spring sale. Mm. And, um, 
Reese was just like blown away because they didn't really know too much about anything and at that stage and um he said uh look I, that is amazing and uh, I'll, I'll have to talk to them about it and I do remember him telling me at the time it was so it was so fresh that I actually forgot that they had done that mm. and so when we got back here and the sale was getting closer I um I talked to mum about it and mum was pretty emotional when she realized like I can't believe I didn't tell mum at the time but mm. it just was that's nice and just move on and you know we went down and we had morning tea with the Corrigans and like it's it's really a vital show of support it was a vital show of support at a time when we felt like people could be taking a step back from us and being like well that's pretty effed what kind of family do they come from mm. um just going to keep that you know put that aside but they did the exact opposite, these people that we've only known for a short period of time and they charged into the fray basically and wanted to donate an extraordinary amount of money that it's not easy times for anyone in Australia right now or really the world. Mm. And it was all ended up being auctioned for $15,000. That's out of your, you know, pocket. Mm. And the auctioneers um, actually at the end of the uh, sales threw in five thousand dollars as well mm. um to, for the cause because they believe in the cause because nobody wants to tolerate this anymore and and for some people you know d- making a donation is is their easiest sort of way that they can and the quickest way that they can make a contribution mm. to well i do not tolerate this and to make it publicly known that i do not tolerate this if i see anything on the spectrum of sexual violence i will call you out on it because it's ridiculous, which mm. is, it is. Mm. Um, so how, how do you, do you have plans in how you're going to navigate yourself in moving forward um, through the, through this process of grief, but also with, um, with the sort of big obstacles that are in the way as well surrounding Alex's death? How, how do you want to, to move forward and, I guess, um, honour her and, and do the right thing by her. But um, do you want some positive things to come from this? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I think th- talking about what a lovely, fun, um, intelligent person she was is so important and it will be a lifelong campaign for me doing this because this happens to lovely people and I think um, – I don't know who people imagine this kind of stuff happens to or what kind of a box with labels we've set up there, but it's that is such an important part of the story. So in a way, in, in, in going down this path of a lifelong sort of dedication to changing these social conditions, I get to tell everybody every day how wonderful she was because it's so important for people to know that this happens and it doesn't and I like when I first disclosed to my um friends in high school about my childhood sexual abuse they were like oh I just didn't think things like this happened to people like you and I think that's such a big part of the story Mm. and so in doing this I get to celebrate her Mm. on a grand scale and I think in some ways she would hate that but too bad yeah um (laughs) and I also get to change the conditions that have led to this for my own children. Mm. What am I going to tell them in 20 years? Mm. Some people did some terrible things to your auntie 
and we just sat down and we tried to forget about it. Yeah. I said, no yeah. way in hell that I would do that. And I know, I think she understands that. Like, I think she knows that there is no way. In the same way that Alex was fierce in her protection of me, and also even as an adult, and when my kids came along, she was always very fierce. Like, if anyone looked the wrong way at one of my kids, she was the first one in there to be mm. like, you know? Yeah. Protect back you. off. Mm. And, like, I, all I'm doing is that, like, if, if, if there is anything that comes of this that protects those children, my kids, I think Alex would be happy with that. Yeah. That's good, Jin. I think you're right too. And I think um, people who might be listening to this now and are getting an, a brief understanding of of the woman she was and, and all of the trauma that she um, endured would hear that that by speaking up and and just having a conversation about it, which might enable somebody else to be able to say, yes, this has happened to me too and I'd like to do something about it, um, is the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I think that the disclosure and the impacts that this has had on the family members of the perpetrators every day, I think about how I have impacted not me, Mm. how those perpetrators impacted their lives mm. um, because they let's not shift blame onto the person who's making the disclosure. Yeah. Let's take it back to the perpetrators. But I still carry that. Yes. I still carry that I have caused them that pain and I wrongly carry that. Mm. But I know that being quiet protects nobody in the mm. long run. No, in, in fact, it makes more people vulnerable mm. to these kinds of crimes if I be quiet. So mm. I, in some ways, I feel complicit if I be quiet. Mm. And that is wrong at every level to be mm. complicit and tolerate these crimes. Yeah. Do you have any plans for how how the next 12 months might look or are there things that you want to achieve in all of this or are you just taking things day by day? Well, we are um, trying to press charges um, and that's I'm also working on a series that has been commissioned by the Australian um, which looks at um, the experiences of a number of women in trying to hold their abusers to account and it's incredible and these women that are getting in touch with me um, I think I'm getting some kind of vicarious closure through them Mm. to know because I will never be able to hold my abuser to account because he's dead Mm. and hearing from these women who have put their either put their abusers in jail or are in the legal system on the way to doing that um and to be able to assist in the telling of their story so that other people who are in the position of not being yet able to hold their abusers to account can can see their story and get strength from that and hopefully pursue their own path Mm. is that is an astounding position for me to be able to be in because of my line of work Mm. but um as a change as a you know a way to create change and you know systems and um, law enforcement are kind of in some ways they don't help or they make it hard that it is still possible um because these women are showing that and they've got in touch with me to tell me that um Mm. so it gives me a lot of um so yeah that's as I said about like I'm not doing too much work on getting the 
um, eco message out there at the moment because I've just come across this other huge social issue that yeah. needs addressing. <laughs> but I mean, it's I, like it's all about living gently. Like, mm. why, why can't we just be truthful? Let's let's be kind to other people. Yeah. Let's raise our kids in a gentle way so that they don't see these maladaptive behaviours as acceptable and they don't see that it's okay to treat other people in ways that are subhuman. Like it is all, you know, I get a lot of relief from still being gentle with the environment, even though um, it's taken a bit of a backseat, like you've got to cut yourself some slack and only do what you can. But I still get relief from that because I, I want that to be in line with my values. And now I'm just like anything I can do to help other women to, you know, get the strength they need to do what is, you know, to get some justice and some closure that me and my sister did not get. Mm. Well, do. Than, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ginny, I just take my hat off to you for, for grabbing this and, and not accepting that that's happened and that Ali's life is over and and that we should just all get on with our lives but you've you and your mum have decided that it's not acceptable and it certainly now that the the worst has happened and we've lost our um you know something needs to happen and if it is just opening up a conversation and and allowing other people to feel empowered to come forward about that then then you've done something really wonderful and we've already seen some some really positive movements around that um so you know i just think you're doing an extraordinary job and you're very brave and you're doing it with a very wholesome and loving heart and i think people can really relate to that so thank you for all that you're doing and will do and i know i'll certainly um always support you and um yeah just look forward to seeing what you're able to achieve in whatever time frame this happens in it could be the rest of your life could be the next 12 months who knows um but thank you for sharing all of um well certainly a lot of your life and and the interesting parts of it and and your different passions you're a very passionate girl and that's one of the things I love most about you and I know people will have learned a lot today about um a lot of different topics so thank you very much for your time and your friendship thanks jim thanks for your friendship too and also it's my place it's my place to say um what you're doing for ali is amazing too and i think that this cuts to the core of what i'm trying to do is to just tell people that everybody is having these struggles everybody has things that they deal with and and in not talking about them all we do is make people feel alone in their struggle and so what your podcast is doing is being like does taking to any regular person like me has had things happen and how they have had to deal with that and and it's so important for people to know that the support is there people are so like even with coming out about the you know the rape allegations like we thought that there could be the possibility that people would not be ready to support us we could not have been more wrong People are ready for you to, you know, to unleash, you know, whatever's been going on for you. And you will just be so surprised and floored at how much people are willing to support you in that. And don't think for a second that the support isn't there because it is. 
If you got something out of this episode or something resonated with you, I'd love it if you could please share with your friends and leave a review. Thank you.